I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. California has announced that it will reinstate an indoor mask mandate in public settings regardless of vaccination status. The order also includes new requirements for mega events of 1,000 people or more and new travel recommendations. The mandate starts Wednesday and it will last through January 15th. This announcement comes on the heels of concerns over the Omicron variant, which made many of us reevaluate again, our social behavior and holiday plans. It's also raised questions around the effectiveness of vaccines and boosters. Chronicle Health reporter Aaron Alday and I asked two UCSF pandemic experts about these questions and concerns at an event on Twitter Spaces last week. Dr. Bob Wachter is the chair of UCSF's Department of Medicine, and Dr. Monica Gandhi is a professor of medicine and helps lead UCSF's Division of HIV Infectious Diseases and Global Medicine. The pandemic has made both of them into sort of social media celebrities, and they don't always agree with each other. Wachter takes a more cautious and conservative approach to COVID safety, while Gandhi's views, like urging school officials to provide a strategy for removing masks from school children, have been more relaxed and controversial. Today's episode is a recording of that live conversation. We asked doctors Wachter and Gandhi about how they're thinking about Omicron, especially around holiday travel and gatherings, and we asked them to weigh in on each other's perspectives. We also asked them what they've learned about themselves during the pandemic. Here's that Twitter Spaces conversation, which was hosted by me and our newsroom's leading pandemic expert, Chronicle reporter Aaron Alday. It's been edited for time and clarity. Gandhi had a little trouble connecting to Twitter Spaces, so you'll hear from her in the second half of the interview. We started by asking Dr. Wachter what his level of concern is over the Omicron variant. Moderate to moderately high. The picture's becoming clear, and as you say, every hour, there was just those uh, early, the preprint came out of the UK with the first, I think, good epidemiologic data, and it showed that the, your two shots, uh, as we suspected from the test tube data, that your two shots don't really protect you very much. Three shots give you a high level of protection, but not as high as against Delta. So the efficacy went down from what we think of as about 95%. Uh, for people who've gotten boosted down to about 75%. That's for all infections. Uh, we don't know yet the how well it will hold up against severe infections. The suspicion is it will hold up pretty well. I'm going with the, the likeliest scenario being that it will become a, if not the major virus that we see in the United States, probably by mid to late January or early February, that the cases will turn out to be milder than the average case of Delta. Delta remains the dominant theme for the next month and kind of decide on personal behavior. We're lucky to be in the Bay Area where a lot of people are vaccinated. I assume most people will get their boosters. Uh, And, and, you know, it just means that there's going to be a new kid on the block that we've got to pay attention to. I also wanted to ask another question to you, Dr. Wachter. You know, are we just going to keep cycling through these variants? I know, like you mentioned, early evidence suggests that the variant may cause mild illness. Is there any upside to this in terms of variants actually getting us through the pandemic faster if mild infections become more common? That's the happiest scenario. And it is possible. There is a world in which this becomes the dominant virus and it it has uh, less of a wallop than Delta does. Now, 
how happy a scenario is that you have to be careful to not be too ecstatic about that because let's say it turns out to be twice as readily spreadable again either because it is truly more infectious or because it evades immunity but whatever combination you're twice as apt to get it and let's say it's half as severe the aggregate impact on the society is then the same it's still just as many people getting sick going to the hospital but you know, replacing Delta being twice as, as readily spreadable and half as severe if you end up in the same place. And that's where you do end up in the same place in terms of uh, number of sick people, number of very sick people, number of people dying. That's not a great place. I mean, we've sort of normalized 1,200 to 1,500 deaths a day. It's, that's devastating. Mm-hmm. So the truly happy scenario, if it turns out to be one-fifth as severe, uh, then we end up in a much better place but again, I'm not trying to not sort of wish that to be so, because I think we, uh, uh, you know, we just don't know enough yet to be sure. Dr. Bachter, what, um, you know, what, what information are you, what, what data are you hoping, are you most kind of eager or maybe anxious is a better word to say, um, to see about, about Omicron in the next, you know, few weeks? What are you most sort of anticipating? Yeah, I think figuring out the severity thing is going to be really important. It is really hard to do. It may look less severe, and it's not. I suspect it is less severe. These early reports that came out last week that people are just not seeing the, sp- the, the loss of smell and taste was really intriguing because it just said this may be a virus that's acting fundamentally differently in terms of which cells it invades and how badly it invades them. So I think it is going to turn out to be less severe. I think the weight of the evidence is that. But that, being sure about that is important. And it's increasingly clear that your third, if you have three shots, you're in pretty good shape, although not as good as you were before. I think we will we will stop calling people with two shots, quote, fully vaccinated within a week or two. I just think they're not. I wish they were. <laughs> It'd be great if they were. I think fully vaccinated very clearly is going to be three shots and, 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 and uh, Omicron is going to make that case quite, quite vivid. And finally, the question that's not going to get answered for, for a month or two is long COVID. So if it turns out that the efficacy of my three shots has gone from 95 to 75%, so I'm you know, substantially more likely to get COVID, and it, let's say it turns out to be a milder illness, you might say I can let my guard down some, but I'm not going to do that until I have some sense of the possibility that a mild case that I get with Omicron can or can't lead to me feeling crummy three months from now. And that, that, that data, unfortunately, is only going to be available three months from now. It's going to take a while for that to sort out. So that remains a variable that I think is going to remain an unknown for a substantial period of time. And that influences at least my own personal behavior. Well, speaking of personal behavior, Dr. Wachter, can you walk us through how you're planning your holiday plans? What should folks listening in on and hearing about what's going on right now? And as they make their own plans, how should they navigate that? And what kind of information should they take into account as they figure out what is the safest thing to do? Yeah, I'll give you my own thinking about it. I am absolutely willing to travel and get on airplanes now, partly because airplanes aren't particularly risky because of the ventilation, partly because I came to a realization a month or two ago that we're going to be living with some version of COVID for years and maybe forever. And so if you say, I'm not going to travel over the holidays to visit family and friends, and that's an important thing to you in life and gives you joy and meaning... I think you're sort of saying, you know, that I may never do that because I'm not convinced that next Christmas will be different than this Christmas, which is a sad statement, but I think the likeliest outcome. So 
I don't think travel's particularly dangerous. I think that I wear an N95 on airplanes or in any crowded places where I'm not 100% confident that everybody is vaccinated and boosted, which I think these days is most places. Uh, I am willing to get together with small groups of people who I believe are fully vaccinated and, if appropriate, boosted um, and not wear a mask in that setting. But that may change as Omicron becomes more of a player at this moment. And I think over the holidays, it's still going to be a very, very small fraction of the case in the United States. So I think your planning is mostly uh, around Delta. And, you know, that's my general rule is I'm comfortable not wearing a mask indoors. I don't wear a mask outdoors pretty much ever. I'm comfortable not wearing a mask indoors if I am confident that everybody around me is vaccinated and if they're more than six months out boosted and that all of them would be the kinds of people that if they had a cold that morning would not come into the setting and or do a rapid test. I don't insist on a rapid test to get together for dinner with friends. Uh, That seems a little bit much to me. But if you need to make the setting uber safe, for example, there's an immunocompromised person there or a 90 year old there or something like that, then the additional layer of protection of doing a rapid test that morning really does, you know, take what is already a very safe safe setting and make it even safer. So if that's what you want to or need to do, I think, you know, the rapid tests really answer a very important question very, very well, which is, is anybody here infectious? After a quick break, we'll hear from UCSF's Dr. Monica Gandhi as she joins Dr. Bob Wachter in the Twitter Spaces live conversation. She'll chat about how her views differ from Wachter's, and she'll weigh in on what she thinks is the most important metric in considering an end to San Francisco's mask mandate. We're back with our Twitter Spaces conversation with UCSF's Drs. Bob Wachter and Monica Gandhi. After missing the first portion of the conversation, Gandhi joins the discussion by chiming in on how her views differ from Wachter's and how she goes about offering public advice. When we give advice for the public, um, it's fair to say that we should give nuanced advice to the public. And I actually mean that in terms of, for example, boosters. Um, I mean that in terms of uh, masking and uh, give a good example, you know, the the data on giving boosters to young people, there are side effects of both of the Johnson & Johnson and the mRNA vaccines is actually not there. And the only, the only country in the world that said that we're going to boost 16 to 17 year olds uh, as of yesterday was the U.S. Um, that That isn't a strategy that's uh, that's yet being adopted anywhere else because there are side effects, myocarditis with mRNA vaccines and clots with Johnson and Johnson. So um, I want to be wary of kind of one size fits all in terms of anything to do with COVID. It's a risk stratified illness. People who are older are more likely to get sick before the vaccines. People who are younger and especially children are very unlikely to get sick. And it's, it's important to not say that there's one definition of how you should be or how you should give advice as a public policy person. And so, yes, I think Bob and I have had these kind of funny roles in the city where he's one way and I'm the other way. And someone put on Twitter something like, I'm, I'm vibing Monica Gandhi tonight, so I'm going to go to a concert. But if I'm bobbing Bob Wachter, Bob, Bob I wouldn't. Um, but um, <laughs> and, and that's okay. Like, that's that I think as long as the principles are the same and that we think 
everyone thinks epidemiologically children are less at risk. We've never closed schools ever like this, ever. And in, in, in for measles, for diphtheria, for pertussis, for t- diseases that, in, that affect children more, we've never closed schools. That was political. And so it's important to just be as clear as you can and people will attack you and it's okay because I don't have the same risk tolerance perhaps as someone older and someone younger than me may have less risk tolerance and that's, it's okay. We should just put general principles into place that have data behind them and give advice accordingly. This actually brings up a good question, I think, and maybe Dr. Walker and Dr. Gandhi, you might have differing views on this, but when should San Francisco end the mask mandate? What metrics are you both looking at for the city to make that determination, which I think a lot of residents are just eager to to understand? Well, so, you know, I think what is extremely clear is that hospitalizations essentially tracked with cases prior to vaccination. It was never one-to-one, but in general, the curves would follow each other. After vaccines were rolled out to the public, um, the Delta variant was the next variant, and hospitalizations did not track with cases, as the San Francisco Chronicle reported. They went around the country. It was a really nice analysis. And cases and hospitalizations became delinked in places of high vaccination. And that remains true today with the Omicron variant. But so at this point, you know, just to put it clearly, the nine counties decided to work together and then now they've diverged. And Marin County had zero people in the hospital four weeks ago with COVID, zero. And everyone was being told that they had to wear masks indoors. So the health officer decided to use a hospitalization metric and he dropped the mask mandate. And uh, now, though cases have gone up um, in the winter, as they do, there's five people in the hospital, as you reported in the San Francisco Chronicle, um, in Marin. So the mask mandate stays off. And I think that that's how we should decide on a mask mandate, is on hospitalizations. And that means that San Francisco right now at a 1.2 over 100,000 people in the hospital should drop their mask mandate. Yeah, I, it's a tough call. I I personally, you know, there are 34 people in San Francisco hospitals uh, right now. <laughs> at, you know, at our peak, we were at 250. Uh, but it's going up to, uh, close to, it's almost doubled in the last few weeks. I think that, you know, to my mind, the there are two things that make me a little reluctant to relax too quickly because I worry that we're going to have to go backwards. Uh, Omicron is one of them, and I think it may change the game in ways that are unpredictable. There's another one that may go in the opposite direction, which is the Pfizer uh, oral drug. If it comes out and it turns out to work as well as it worked in the clinical trials and lowers the rate of hospitalizations and deaths by 90 percent, that is a potential game changer in the other direction. It will even emphasize even more Monica's point that that you know, you'd have a, a greater dissociation between cases and deaths. So you have two things kind of on the horizon that may make the, that using the case rate as your thing that you look at even less viable. And I think you can make a good argument that hospitalizations should become the thing that we look at in deciding on what we do personally and what the best public policy is. I will say um, one of the, the questions that I get very commonly from folks, there's there's two worries people have largely is, is the long COVID, which I think you just addressed very nicely, Dr. Gandhi and Dr. Wachter, but also this, this risk of transmission. Um, and we even have a, a question from a Twitter user, um, Goth Blair, actually Goth Blair Waldorf, um, 
who says, has there been a definitive answer yet on whether vaccinated and boosted young people can spread the virus to older boosted people? I'm nervous to travel to a high transmission area, catch something and transmit it to my parents. And that's definitely, I, I hear that a lot from folks. What's, what's your answer to someone like that? Well, I think the, the answer is, is there's, I think, relatively little question that you can. It's really a matter of weighing probabilities. And, you know, I think as Monica implies at some point, you know, are the probabilities of a bad thing so low that the downside of being uh, paralyzed by them uh, sort of outweighs the upside. You know, for me, I just was in Florida over Thanksgiving and I was coming from a low prevalence region in the Bay Area and I was going to what right now is a low prevalence region in Florida. And when you weigh all of those things, the chances you're going to get exposed to someone when the case rate in the Bay Area might be 10 people per 100,000 per day times the protection that the person has from their vaccinations times the protection that the person has who might be the recipient of the infection. You know, and, and when I'm in the same room with Monica, I am framed as the very conservative one. And I probably am compared to her. But at that point, I'm like, no, this isn't this isn't a risky thing. I'm comfortable taking my mask off. I'm definitely going to do it because the upside outweighs outweighs the downside. But that's the kind of mental calculus that you have to do if you really want to think through the probabilities of a bad thing happening. The idea that you can spread virus after you've been vaccinated is is true. It's true of all um, vaccines. For example, if we had a measles outbreak in Marin, like we we did when people weren't vaccinating their children, if you swabbed everyone's nose around there, they'd probably have measles in their nose, but they wouldn't manifest symptoms if they were vaccinated. So it's possible, but the contact tracing studies from there's one at Harvard, there's one at Oxford, there's one at um, in Singapore. Singapore does very careful contact tracing studies. Show, shows that if you're asymptomatic, you don't have symptoms, and you're vaccinated, you're likely not spreading virus. Um, and the the entire mixed messaging and problematic messaging that came out of the Provincetown outbreak from the CDC was around people who are symptomatic. So it's important to say that if you're feeling well and you're in a room with like a bunch of people who feel well and they're all vaccinated, you're you're good. And um, you know we do these arbitrary things like San Francisco's decided less than 100 people can be in a room unmasked and vaccinated. I don't know where the hundred comes from, but they're asymptomatic and vaccinated. I would say if you don't feel well, don't go to that uh, event or don't go to the office. Mm -hmm. And that's really what's going to prevent us from spreading any infection, including influenza, which we spread because we used to go to work sick. So I don't think we're going to go to work sick anymore. And that will be really helpful. What what has this pandemic taught you, both of you, this is for both of you, taught you kind of personally? Um, how has it How has it changed you? And maybe kind of how you think about your profession, but also, you know, personally, how has it changed you? You know, I uh, I was a doctor because my parents told me to become a doctor. I went to the right medical school. I came to the right residency. Like I never was in controversial. And I actually found it really surprising to have any controversy surround what I was trying to to message about COVID um, because I may have a different view, but I think it's biologically based. And I found it really strange that people attack each other so much. I actually found it really strange. I'm surprised by how politicized everything is. And I feel a great deal of sympathy for um, how angry people are and hurt by each other. I've learned to be more leery of maybe expressing um, what I think, but I also 
I, I pretend that I am and I keep on trying to get off Twitter and then I like come back. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I learned. <laughs> Monica, if you've become more leery of expressing yourself, I don't know. I, I haven't. <laughs> I don't know what I've learned. I've learned that like I'm tolerant of you, Bob, and I'm tolerant because I think that you're a great physician and I've known you a long time and you may be different than, than I, but that we are actually both in a way trying to advise the best that we can. Yeah. I mean, I have found this whole thing uh, as terrible as it's been strangely gratifying. And just because I have found myself in the middle of the most interesting and important question in the world and trying to make sense of it myself and that people seem to care what I think. And that's, that's been, that has been gratifying. I'm massively troubled by the politicization of it. Uh, I'm shocked by it in many ways that that uh, that the, your, your sort of political stance has led to a set of behaviors that I think actually are harmful to you personally and to others. Uh, but you know the the whole Twitter thing and the public communications thing, it's actually been it, it's been fascinating watching the public try to learn science in real time and having a small role in trying to teach that and make sense of it and parse all the new information. That part's been, that's been pretty gratifying. I'd love it to go away. I'm perfectly ready to get back to the rest of my life. And, uh, but the virus doesn't seem to be ready for us to move on. That was an interview with UCSF's Dr. Bob Wachter and Dr. Monica Gandhi, which was hosted on Twitter Spaces. You can find both doctors on Twitter at at Bob underscore Wachter and at Monica Gandhi 9. And to make sure you don't miss future Twitter Spaces events, you can follow The Chronicle at SF Chronicle and me at C-Lay. That's C-E-E-L-E-I. You can find Aaron Alday's COVID-19 reporting at sfchronicle.com or on the Chronicle app. Thanks to Erica Carlos for producing the Twitter Spaces event, King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. <laughs>